0: The First Continental Congress was convened from September 5th until October 26th, 1774 in Philadelphia. At the First Continental Congress, representatives from 12 of the 13 British colonies in North America gathered to discuss the growing tensions, indeed conflict, between those colonies and their home sweet home in Great Britain. I apologize, Mike and Marie, for this opening illustration there it is. They met in that First Continental Congress. They felt attacked. In fact, they felt attacked mostly by fiscal policy. Of course, you know the, the conflict being primarily over taxation without representation. But as they met, they, they discussed this need uh, that they had for resolution, for victory, for compromise, for uh, their grievances to be dealt with. And so they actually argued on the first day, I kid you not, they argued over whether or not they, it was fitting and appropriate to read Scripture and pray at the beginning of these Continental Congress meetings. And there was not unanimity on that, even in the first days of our nation. That There were many that were not Christians in that gathering, and they did not necessarily feel it was appropriate for one religion to be kind of driving the bus but nonetheless, they kind of talked it out and they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll go ahead and have scripture and prayer. And so uh, they decided on uh, a local pastor there in Philadelphia to, to do the scripture reading and the prayer. So, so the second day of the First Continental Congress, September 6th, 1774, was opened with Psalm 35, verse 1. I'll read it for you in an older translation. Plead my cause, O Lord. With them that strive with me, fight against them that fight against me. Those are fighting words from the Bible. <laughs> I mean, when you hear that prayer, you recognize, of course, and this is, uh, oh, what was his name? His re- Jacob Duchesne was the name of that, that pastor who picked that verse. But when you read that verse, you could realize wow, they really, uh, they really felt like they were in a tussle here. Now, why Psalm 35? Well, Psalm 35 is a prayer from David, probably on behalf of the entire nation, to the Lord, begging God to intervene. There's some language, as we'll see throughout the psalm, that indicates that this was a national crisis, potentially one where uh, a nation had broken a treaty with Israel. That's possibly the context. And so this was a big problem, Like, death was on the line. I mean, that was, you know, it was a life or death issue for the nation. So this wasn't like a situation where David's co-worker gave him a dirty look from the other cubicle, you know, or something like that. Like, this wasn't, we shouldn't minimize the conflict here. He was facing, the nation was facing serious enemies. Now, there's a difference between God's covenant promises to David and the nation of Israel and God's promises to 13 British colonies in North America. Okay, those aren't necessarily the same circumstances. But even though there's a difference there, as they focused on this epic crisis before them, again, Reverend Jacob Duchesne, his instinct was to draw from this part of Scripture, which called God to recognize injustice and indeed to act. Psalm 35 is a psalm where we see David turn to the Lord in the face of a, a tremendous challenge that the nation was facing. As we see God's character in the psalm, we'll be reminded that we should trust God and turn to Him all the time, not just in moments of epic crisis. But that being said, we do face challenges. And as we face challenges, our response to them shows whether or not we trust in our great God. He is revealed to be our trustworthy protector in the psalm. The question is, do do we believe that, right? Will we turn to Him? Now, I'm not so sure Psalm 35.1 was the right verse for the second day of the Continental Congress, okay? I'm not convinced. Um, that being said, I'm sure that people have used this to support their favorite NFL team, okay? But as any Jets fan will tell you, reading Psalm 35.1 does not guarantee victory. I, I thought that would resonate a little more. Uh, just because you re- read Psalm 35 doesn't mean your team's going to win. And I thought that would resonate with Jets fans. Okay, whatever. We'll move on. Uh, we're just going just gonna to go right. Up. I was like, oh, I'm going to come up with a really relevant, you know, illustration. That, okay, note to self. That one didn't work. All right. Um, now, the, the problem with Jets fans is they're like Mets fans. They just have so much pain and suffering. It's like there's other, there's other psalms that apply maybe more appropriately. All right. If Psalm 35 isn't a magic psalm you can read to make sure you win your, your next battle, well, then what is it? It's a, re- it's a revelation of God's beautiful character as the righteous judge and one that is trustworthy. Should we trust him? How do we trust him? Let's find out. Let's look at Psalm 35. We're going to walk through this psalm in three kind of big chunks, okay? The first chunk is verses 1 through 10. And as we walk through these verses, we'll see David's heart for the nation and really his trust in the Lord on display. Picking up again in verse 1, again, this is a psalm of David. He writes, Oppose my opponents, Lord. Fight those who fight me. And again, as we'll see, this is probably a national-level conflict. So this is not petty conflict between individuals. This is big-time stuff. He calls on God, though, to act as the warrior king that God is revealed to be in the Bible. Take your shields, large and small, he says, and come to my aid. He pictures God as that warrior marching down, uh, you know, onto the earth from, from heaven with the, with the shield, large and small, coming into battle. Verse 3, draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers, and assure me i am your deliverance just before we run off uh, run on past verse 3 that that statement there that that david puts into the lord's mouth i am your deliverance note the confidence that's in that statement here they're they're up against it again possibly a nation had broken a treaty and they were in big trouble well as he turns to the lord he says lord go to battle for us go to war for us but as you do so lord assure me right I am your deliverance. I am your salvation. I am your rescue. David even acknowledges that in in the moment, as the crisis unfolds, he will need reminding that the Lord is his deliverance. He says, Lord, don't let me forget it, that you are my deliverance. Of course, the calling to God to act means dealing with the problem, the enemies. Verse four, he says, let those who intend to take my life Be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and ashamed. Let them be like chaff in the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Just pausing there at verse six, he calls on the Lord to cause the enemies to lose. And rather than Israel to be shamed for trusting in the Lord, he says, Lord, let them be ashamed. Let their arrogance and pride and sin put them on display publicly as failing because they have opposed you. Again, there's a spiritual angle on this, but he asks for the angel of the Lord to drive them away like chaff in the wind that's just blown away, just like little pieces of dust caught on the wind. Or let their way be dark and slippery. And they let the angel of the Lord pursue them and let them not be able to find their way and let the angel of the Lord bring them to defeat rather than victory against the nation of Israel. Their attack was, um, it was scandalous. Verse 7, it says, "'They hid their net for me without cause. "'They dug a pit for me without cause. "'Let ruin come on him unexpectedly and let the net that he hid ensnare him. "'Let him fall into it to his ruin.'" you pause there at verse 8, David articulates this this reality that the the opponent, again, if it's a nation, they've broken this treaty in a sneaky, underhanded way. They've laid a trap for him. They've set out this net. They've dug a pit. And David says, Lord, let them get caught in their own net. May this backfire, this ambush on your nation. May it backfire to to the enemy's ruin, Lord, not to our ruin. And then how will he respond? Verses 9 and 10. Then I will rejoice in the Lord. This is worship language. I will delight in his deliverance. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Rescuing the poor one too strong for him. The poor or the needy from one who robs him. Rescuing the poor from one too strong for him or the poor or the needy from one who robs him. If we pause there, we see David's heart in this psalm as he cries out to the Lord for help. And the main idea of the psalm, I think, can be captured in that quote that David has in verse 3. When when he wants the Lord to remind him and assure him, I am your deliverance. He is our deliverance. He is still our rescuer, our redeemer, our savior. God's character as a protector and provider hasn't changed in 3,000 years. For David to call on the Lord to deliver is calling on the Lord to do what the Lord is already inclined to do, to rescue. And so when he says, assure me, I am your deliverance, he says, Lord, just remind me how good you are at this, at being the warrior king who steps in for his people and provides. Again, he is our deliverance. But that deliverance, God's character as Savior, is based on something very specific. It's based on his covenant promises and his character. He is our deliverance based on his covenant promises and character. Again, God had made specific promises to David and to the nation of Israel. And so in response to those promises, David says, Okay, Lord, you've promised to protect us as a nation while we're being threatened. And so I'm calling on you to make good on these promises and act in line with your character. Again, God hasn't made those same exact promises to every nation. And so we live in a different circumstance in one sense, from a from a national perspective. And yet, the character of God still abides. And He has made covenant promises to you and to me that apply to us even today. But what are they? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Because we have to just acknowledge that God doesn't promise us everything we want. God doesn't promise to give us everything we want. That's a false gospel that's being peddled under the cross of Christ around the world. It says, if you put your faith in Jesus, your team will always win. Refer to my previous example, right? (laughs) It's just not true. It's just not true that we always get everything we want. God hasn't promised that. And I I was so helped by Pastor Jesse preaching uh, a few weeks back, and he, he introduced this idea of God's promises versus his kindnesses. And so when God gives us something that he hasn't necessarily promised to us, it's a kindness. It's God's grace Sometimes your team does win. Sometimes you do get the raise. Sometimes things do go well, and you praise God for that as a kindness. But again, he hasn't promised to always give you victory in every battle of your life. Well, what has he promised us then? Well, how about this one from Romans chapter 8? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, he's promised that even when you lose, you win. Or how about from Philippians chapter 4, my God will supply all your needs. That promise is in effect. He is our deliverance, and it's based on His covenant and His character. His covenant promises and His character inform us as to what we should expect. And we should expect God to meet our needs. Not always in the way that we think they should be met, perhaps, but nonetheless, that's a promise of God for us. How about Psalm 23? Even in the darkest valley, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God has promised to walk with us and guide us even through the darkest, hardest, most difficult moments of our life. That's a promise. And so we can expect God to be our deliverance according to his covenant promises and his character. Of course, he is always faithful. That's on display here in this section of the psalm that David turns to him, relying on him to come through with his covenant promises. And it is true that he is the protector. Again, assure me, Lord, remind me, say it, that you are my deliverance. And when God provides, how does David say he'll respond? Rejoice, I'll worship. And how should we respond when we see God provide? Well, give him credit. I mean, praise God for what he's done. I like verse 10, let your bones do the talking. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? All my bones will say... Lord, who is like you? What is David saying? He's saying every, every inch of me, every ounce of my character will confess, Lord, that you are glorious. We'll say, who is like you? Lord, who is like you, rescuing the poor from the one too strong? Lord, you get the glory for provision and deliverance and victory. And so when God provides, whether God is answering a promise that he has made or whether he is simply being kind to us, we can respond and worship and rejoice and say, yes, he is my deliverance. I fear that sometimes when God provides, we pat ourselves on the back for doing a good job rather than well, testifying to his goodness, it would do your family a ton of good to take time, maybe around the dinner table, right? To take time to just just articulate how you've seen God be faithful in your life this week. And just to say, yeah, I just, this happened at work. This happened at school. This happened in the situation with our family. And I just want to testify and just say that, wow, God is so good. And look at what he's done. And even to articulate, y'all, in a hardship There was was bad news this week. There was difficulty this week. But watch, I still see God's goodness on display. He is our deliverance. And that's based on his covenant promises and his character. Now, I said it earlier, but these enemies weren't just giving Israel dirty looks. Watch verse 11. David continues. He says, again, now describing the threat in poetic terms. He says, malicious witnesses come forward. They question me about things I do not know. They repay me evil for good, making me desolate. Yet when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer was genuine. I went about mourning as if for my friend or brother. I was bowed down with grief like one mourning for a mother. But when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. They gathered against me. Assailants that I did not know tore at me and did not stop. With godless mockery, they gnashed their teeth at me. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages. Rescue my precious life from the young lions. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will exalt you among many people. If you pause there in this section, as David describes his enemy, right? He describes them in terms of malice, of trickery, right? Of false accusations. Again, repaying evil for good, if it is the context of a nation breaking a covenant David says Israel was faithful in their side of the covenant and yet this nation has broken the covenant if he's thinking more on a personal level of a serious threat against him the same the same factor applies that someone had had turned the tables on him and, re- and returned e- uh, evil for good right they had actually tricked David. And even uses this analogy about when they were sick. When they were sick, I prayed for them. I, you know, dressed in sackcloth. I brought them chicken soup. You know, I, I dropped off Gatorade and whatever else they needed, right? I took care of them. And yet when I stumbled, they gather around and gleed. They posted it on Instagram. I mean, they're mocking me. They gather and, and, and they're uh, scheming against me. Again in 16, with godless mockery, they gnash their teeth. And then he just calls on the Lord. He says, Lord, How long will you look on? I know you're not okay with this, Lord. How long will you look on? Rescue me. Rescue me from their ravages. Rescue my precious life from young lions. David relies and calls on the Lord here in in righteous judgment to act. He's like, Lord, I know. I know that your sense of righteousness is not okay with this. So act. Lord, do something. And then, of course, again, I'll worship. Verse 18. I'll praise you in the great assembly. I will exalt you among many people. Those are some of those hints that maybe just indicate that this is for a bigger, you know, moment, that the nation was gathered together and that this was a moment to see God provide for the nation. We'll see more of that in the last section. But in this part, in verses 11 to 18, we see that He is our deliverance, not just based on His covenant promises and character, but He is our deliverance in the face of injustice. When things weren't going right, when someone had tried to trick him, when whether national or personal, with malice and deceit, people had turned on him, repaying evil for good, David went to the Lord. He turned to the Lord for help. He is our deliverance in the face of injustice. Now, I think there is a seriousness to this injustice that we have to acknowledge that we are not facing. Okay? We are not facing uh, warfare where our lives are at stake or someone who has threatened to kill us, those kind of extreme moments. But even though we're not facing that massive national scale of threat, or maybe again a death threat or something like that, we can at least commiserate with those who are. We can acknowledge that while Christians in this country aren't threatened with imprisonment or death, there are Christians on planet earth that are threatened with imprisonment and death. And there are Christians who today are in prison and are awaiting their execution. And so we just have to acknowledge that injustice is real. It is a thing. It's out there. And, you know, there's this, you know, temptation to think, well, if it's not happening here, then it's not happening, right? And just just ignore it. But as God's people, we can't ignore it. And to the degree that we are made aware of, of especially believers who are facing this kind of injustice, we need to respond rightly, which means at the bare minimum to pray for them right? To bring them to the Lord. You know, you're thinking, Pastor Ryan, I I don't even know. I don't know what's going on with that. Well, it's funny. There are actually ministries that work to make people more aware of how the church may be suffering across the world. One of them is Voice of the Martyrs. You You can look up online, go to the Voice of the Martyrs website. You can sign up and get their updates that can inform you as to how you should pray for believers in other places in the world who are facing this kind of threat. We can pray for them. We can also provide for them. Of course, David turns to the Lord here for provision, to do something, to provide, to, to provide justice instead of injustice. And sometimes God gives us an opportunity to alleviate suffering. And if we have an opportunity to do that, we should do it. It's, it's interesting. You read these kinds of Psalms and sometimes we can trivialize them by, again, applying them to our coworker who's being mean to us or something. And I think we may miss the bigger point if we do that. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes we can read them and they seem so big and it's such a big deal, we can just go, oh, well, I'm not facing that, so this doesn't help me. But it does help us because it reminds us that, yes, injustice is out there, and no, God is not okay with it. Again, that cry to the Lord where he says in verse 17, Lord, how long will you look on? We, we should adopt that in our prayers. Lord, how long will you look on this injustice and cease to act? in reflecting on these kinds of psalms, including Psalm 35, uh, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, there is in the world such a thing as wickedness, and wickedness is hateful to God. He said, the church has got to wake up. Sometimes we just pretend that, you know, oh, it's not that bad. Psalms like this remind us that in certain places, it is that bad. It is that bad, and we need to turn to the Lord and cry out to Him for relief and help. I would just maybe offer a caution here Uh, we need to be careful about letting politics mess this up Um, politics like in pretty much every area muddies the waters right in our lives Um, but we need to be brave and whether it's voices from the right or voices from the left often they can distort a concern for true injustice right or we say okay um, I'm not gonna let a politician dictate what is right or wrong And even if it makes uh, me politically uncomfortable, I need to stand up and say that, yes, this injustice is wrong, and I'm not okay with it. And so unfortunately, because political forces are strong in our world, we can let politicians dictate what what we care about. But what we really need to be doing is we need to be courageous people of faith and let God tell us what we should care about. Let his standard be the standard that we're concerned with. And let his line for right and wrong be the line that concerns us. And I just got to tell you that when we're faithful to his word, it doesn't always match up to political alliances, okay? So sometimes as you speak the the truth boldly in God's word and you stand up and say, hey, this is wrong, you might make people mad on the right or on the left. And guess what? Who cares? Like, that's okay. That it's, you know, if, if they kick you out of that club, you probably shouldn't be in that club anyway, Right? I mean, that's the deal here. Because as David shows us in times, again, of of massive injustice in the world, there's no place to go other than to seek the Lord and to ask him to intervene. These enemies will not get away with it. Note the last section in the psalm. In verse 19, David says, Do not let my deceitful enemies rejoice over me. Do not let those who hate me without cause rejoice. Wink at me maliciously. You pause. Any of you wink at people maliciously? You know what that one looks like? It's like that little, you know, like, I don't know what it is. I was trying to do it in the mirror, and I couldn't get it right. So maybe you're better at it than I am. What is he talking about? This is, ta- this is talking about duplicitousness. This is deceptive, right? Where they're nice to you, but then they're stabbing you in the back. And again, this applies if it's a national, you know, a nation breaking a covenant, or whether it's a person who's actually just kind of, you know, uh, taking advantage of you, but they're being nice to you on one hand and then they're stabbing you in the back with the other. Many of us have experienced that one way or another, but David says, don't let those who hate me without cause be successful in that. Don't let them wink at me maliciously and get away with it. Verse 20, for they do not speak in friendly ways. Literally, they do not speak peace peaceably. But they they contrive fraudulent schemes against those who live peacefully in the land. So here's the part of the psalm where we get some language that was used in covenant uh, treaties that that would be made between ancient Near Eastern nations. And so there there were punishments if you broke the covenant. So some of that terminology is in here. That's why we think maybe this was on the national level. It was that big of a crisis. Again, either way, the problem is that what they're doing isn't right. And so David prays, Lord, basically give them what they deserve. Verse 21 they open their mouths wide against me and say aha aha we saw it you saw it lord do not be silent lord do not be far from me again david here exp- expresses this idea of someone being the the nation or the person being friendly on the one hand but then turning on them and here they're crying out aha aha see we got you we've got you now and they say we saw it and they've they've actually trumped up a charge. They've offered lies to make their breaking of the treaty plausible, right? They've misrepresented the truth. And so, David, it's poetic there, isn't it? They say, aha, aha, we saw it. You saw it, Lord. David says, people can be deceived. Courts can get it wrong. But Lord, you saw it. You know the truth. And he's calling on the Lord to act. Do not be silent, he says, Lord. Do not be far from me. Again, he's calling on God to to march into battle here and to protect his people. Literally, verse 23, "'Wake up and rise to my defense, to my cause, my God and my Lord.'" Lord, come to battle. Lord, arise to my defense. Act on my defense. Lord, defeat my enemies. Verse 24, the thought continues, "'Vindicate me, Lord my God.'" in keeping with your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. You can see here in the psalm, as the psalm progressed, you know, David's thought is it's for justice, but it's not for justice as defined by him. It's for justice as defined by the Lord. Note again in verse 24, vindicate me, Lord, my God, in keeping with your righteousness, not with my righteousness, because sometimes Batman gets it wrong. He doesn't always see it just right. And so David says, Lord, it's your righteousness I'm calling you to act on. And do not let them rejoice over me. Don't, don't let them be victorious over me according to your standard. Verse 25, he continues, Do not let them say in their hearts, Aha, just what we wanted. Like we got him.' Do not let them say, we have swallowed him up. Again, David anticipates the effect of defeat and how it will not just be a defeat for the nation, but it will actually uh, be a defeat for the Lord. In ancient Near Eastern thinking as nations went to war, they thought their gods were warring. And so here David's saying, Lord, don't let them, don't let them, you know, have the satisfaction of saying, aha, we got just what we wanted. We've defeated them. He goes on, verse 26, let those who rejoice at my misfortune be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and reproach. This is tough because David is praying and asking that God would basically give them what they deserve. He says, they're trying to shame me, and Lord, I'm asking you to shame them. They're trying to make me a public mockery. Lord, I'm asking you to publicly show them to be proud, sinful, and to be wrong in this case. Verse 27, he says, let those who want my vindication shout for joy and be glad. Basically, let my team rejoice. Let them continually say, the Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servants' well-being. And my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praises all day long. David calls on the Lord to act, to be his deliverance, to be the deliverance for the nation. And he says, Lord, the result of this has to be worship for you. Lord, I want to exalt you. Let those who want my vindication shout for joy because of your provision. Let them say the Lord is exalted. Not David be exalted. The Lord be exalted. Why? Because he takes pleasure in his servants' well-being. God does care for us. And then he says, my tongue will proclaim your righteousness. Not my righteousness, your righteousness, your praise all day long. He is our deliverance. Based on his covenant promises and character, yes. In the face of injustice, yes. But crucially here, also by taking pleasure in our true prosperity. We're capturing that right there out of verse 27. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being. But we need to talk about it. And I'm using that adjective true because it's important. That God takes pleasure in our true prosperity. This is one of those moments where we have to recognize that yes, God wants us to prosper. But again, Him wanting us to prosper doesn't always mean we win or get what we want. And so here when he says, Lord, provide victory, why? Because he takes pleasure in his servants' well-being. I want you to be worshipped because you do care for us. But in that statement, in that prayer, David is acknowledging that only God knows what's best for his servants. Only God, with infinite knowledge of all the situation and ourselves, right, knows what's best for us. And so, yes, he is our deliverance. He's our deliverance. By taking pleasure in our true prosperity, so a couple of, of just notes here. This psalm, then, it doesn't warrant us wishing evil on our enemies. And some of us maybe have gotten ahead of it here, and you've already posted it on Facebook. Take it down real quick, okay? Because sometimes you take this psalm and you're like, "Oh yeah, uh, I, I've got a lot of enemies, and I'm going to start praying these prayers against them. May the Lord publicly shame fill in the blank." Right? I can get behind that, right? Because I want Lord, I want the Lord to, to be on my team. But David's concern is not for, again, his righteousness or the nation. It's really for the Lord. And so this doesn't warn us wishing evil on our enemies. It really is about God's justice here. And there's a reminder here at the end of the psalm that justice is coming. That the Lord is trustworthy. You know, you find this in so many other places in the Bible. It's an important concept. The idea that, yes, things aren't right now, but one day they will be right And because God is the reason we get from this point to that point, it is right and appropriate for us to pray to him when we're suffering or when we see others suffering injustice. But just so we're really clear, again, it's not a promise for an easy road. And what's so interesting is that Jesus himself quotes from Psalm 35. And when he quotes from this psalm, he talks about don't let them uh, or that they've come against me without cause. When he quotes from that section in the psalm, it's actually the statement is twice in the psalm, but when Jesus quotes from it, he uses it in John 15 25 to teach his disciples to expect opposition. Basically, you should expect, if you're a Christian, to be opposed by the world. And when that happens, it doesn't mean God doesn't take pleasure in your well being. Jesus was preparing his disciples to take heat for being his followers. And he says, listen, you you need to prepare yourselves to trust me and to walk by faith, even when, or especially when, governments, right, uh, co-workers, neighbors, even family members turn on you. He says, you've got to learn to trust me. You've got to learn to rely on me because justice will come, but it may not come when you want it. You know, this idea of being concerned with God's justice over everything else really helps us to be patient for his justice. In fact, really, that's kind of the whole main idea with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation reveals God's judgment. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about the day when God says, okay, this is it. We're going to settle all these wrongs. But really, that book is meant to motivate the faithful to trust God in the meantime when it's not all okay. So yes, God takes pleasure in our prosperity, but our true prosperity, which may mean in the short run, we face significant opposition. So David looked to God for righteous justice. And when we read in the Bible, we find this beautiful narrative, the narrative of redemption, where the son of David, right, the greater son of David, he does what? He actually provides righteous justice. When we ask, what does this psalm, Psalm 35, have to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus? We actually find two very clear answers. The first is maybe unexpected given the psalm. The second is expected, okay? The first is unexpected because when we read the psalm, we find David under the inspiration of the Spirit saying, God, judge my enemies, make them lose, right? And so we realize, wow, that's, that's pretty harsh. But wait a minute, didn't Jesus say that we should love our enemies? What's going on here? Well, what happens is the greater son of David actually facilitates justice, how? By taking his enemies and transforming them into his brothers and sisters. It's remarkable. We read about it in Romans chapter 5. I've got it there for you in the bulletin. But in Romans 5, the apostle Paul says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Paul says we were all God's enemies. We were all unrighteous. We were all sinners. And so if we just pray, God, judge the unrighteous, there's a moment there where you're like, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, That's me. And yet, what do we see in the greater son of David? We see the greater son of David not strike down his enemies, but we see the greater son of David rescue his enemies. Well, where's God's righteousness in that? Well, his righteousness is perfectly on display on the cross. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus was publicly crucified, which means he was publicly shamed. He was publicly punished. But it also means that God's righteousness was publicly on display. Because your sins and my sins were paid for in the sight of all. That's the point. It wasn't a secret backroom deal done in a hush hush environment. In fact, in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul makes a big deal that Jesus was publicly crucified so that everybody would know that my sins were actually paid for. It's like the receipt, right? The bill was paid. Here's the proof the proof is in the cross. And so while we see, yes, an articulation here of God should judge enemies and deal with injustice, we recognize that if that's all he ever did, none of us would have hope. We would all face judgment. And yet the greater son of David, what does he do? He takes his enemies and he makes us his friends, his sons, daughters, brothers and sisters in the family. This is the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to encourage you with that news. Because when you read passages like this in the Bible that talk about God's enemies, right, they can scare you. And I think rightly so. We should fear judgment from God if we're not concerned with it. There is a healthy fear where we say, yes, if if I'm left to myself, if I died today and I haven't trusted in Christ, I would be judged and I would be considered God's enemy. But the good news is just that. It's that Jesus takes his enemies and makes them his friends. If you will repent of your sin and trust in Christ, I guarantee you today that you can go from one category to the other. You can go from the category of being God's enemy to being his son or his daughter, to being in the family, and to being protected from his judgment rather than guaranteed to face it. It's beautiful, the gospel. And even in Psalm 35, we see the the basis of God's character being put on display here. Yes, God cares about injustice, but he's also determined to rescue. And so the cross of Jesus Christ says, I'm going to publicly show how I'll deal with the problem of sin. It's through Jesus' suffering in our place. That's the first way the Son of David helps us with this psalm. The second way is yet to come. And again, we find it in the book of Revelation. When Jesus returns, he's going to make wrongs right. He's going to throw it down. As Johnny Cash said, the man's coming to town. Okay? And when the man comes to town, watch your back. You got to be ready. Right? That's the idea. That this judgment is coming. And so what will happen on that day? Jesus will publicly, and I want to emphasize that term, he will publicly judge the world to satisfy the righteousness of God. Because the truth is, in the meantime, many injustices, maybe most injustices, will go unpunished in the eyes of the world. That, that they'll get away with it. And people get away with stuff all the time. But the fact is that nobody ever really gets away with it. And so this psalm gives us comfort. And as we look to Christ, we see, yes, he rescues his enemies and makes them his friends. But for those who refuse to trust him, they will one day face judgment as his enemy. And that day will be satisfying for the church. It will be a day of public vindication. And it's the day of true, true prosperity. In both of those circumstances, whether God rescues an enemy and makes him a friend, or whether God judges an enemy upon the return of Christ, in both of those cases, he is our deliverance. There's no option here where we say, okay, well, me relying on myself is my best course of action here. Whether it's a concern for my own justice and vengeance that I want to take on somebody else, or whether it's my refusal to trust the Lord for the forgiveness of my sins, one way or another, we have to learn the lesson of Psalm 35, that he is our deliverance. And there will be a day when you'll doubt it. And when you doubt it, just pray and say, Lord, assure me, assure me with the fact that you are my deliverance. What these Psalms never give us license to do is to take matters into our own hands. In fact, it's really instructive here that even in a moment of such significant crisis like this, David doesn't take matters into his own hands. He brings the matter to the Lord in prayer. It doesn't mean he didn't act, but he recognized that he had to depend on the Lord for provision, for protection, for whatever his plan was to work. He refused to say, I'm just going to take care of it myself. My friend Spurgeon said about this psalm, he said, let us not fail to leave our case in the Lord's hands. Maybe you're here today and you have an enemy. Maybe your life's not threatened. It's not as significant as the circumstances of Psalm 35. But maybe you have someone who's against you. You feel attacked. And maybe you've got that that itchy trigger finger. You want to respond in kind. That they've stabbed your back and you want to stab them right back. Well, maybe we should listen to Spurgeon here. He says, let us not fail to leave our case in the Lord's hands. When you pray like this, in the face of severe injustice or even mild injustice, we say, Lord, it's wrong. You know everything. You saw it, Lord. But Lord, I'm giving it to you. Lord, it's yours. Lord, rise up, deliver, protect. But Lord, whatever happens, may I trust you and may I worship as a result. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about different instances or moments in history or in the Bible where we see this on display. And I did think of a moment in the life of David that helps us, I think, see how this psalm plays out. You know, David was on the run. He faced some significant injustice from time to time. But he was on the run from the, from King Saul for quite a while. And there were two times, not once, but two times, When David was on the run from Saul, barely hanging on, barely with food and water, right, to drink, there were two times when he had the opportunity to kill Saul. Once in a cave, once in the camp. And and this is incredible in 1 Samuel. I just want to read to you uh, from the second category. Like Like the first time, okay, David really done his devos that morning. I'll give him credit, all right? So he like, he didn't, you know, he had mercy on Saul. But the second one, I would take that as a sign. Lord keeps giving me opportunities. I guess I need to take it, Right? But David doesn't do it. David refuses. He says, says, no, it's not mine. It's not for me to take vengeance against my enemy. Saul was his enemy. He was trying to kill him. Listen to what David says. This is in 1 Samuel 26. He says, The Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed you over to me today. Today. Just as I considered your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. David said, I could have killed you, but the fact is, it's not for me to do that. I'm trusting the Lord with it. Listen, whatever your crisis, big or small, it doesn't change the fact that he is our deliverance. The question is, will we trust him in the middle? Would you pray? And we'll ask God to help us be people who trust him Lord, we pause again this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 35, which does deal directly with the problem of evil, the problem of injustice, Lord, the problem of threats from an enemy. And Lord, we see even on a massive scale, David, lead the nation in turning to you in faith, asking you to provide and protect. And Lord, we ask that you would be our deliverer, our protection, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you provide protection for us on the cross. We thank you that by your bloodshed that we are protected from the judgment of God. And Lord, we ask that you would lead us and guide us. Lord, we do pray that you would protect us in our daily lives. But Lord, even as we face challenges, dark valleys, trials, we pray that you would help us to trust you and to look to you as our deliverer. And Lord, if it's, if it's your will to, to judge enemies, Lord, in the moment, we pray that you would do that and be glorified. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to be concerned for your righteousness, not our own. And Lord, we look forward uh, to the day of, of judgment when all wrongs are made right. But in the meantime, give us patience informed by faith. Lord, help us to trust you as we navigate the ups and downs of our lives, always mindful that only you are our deliverance. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of your character from Psalm 35. We pray that you would help us to be people who trust you in crises big or small. And we pray these in the name of Jesus, the Son of David, our Savior. Amen.